On this episode of the Mothman and the Bible Belt podcast, West Virginia filmmakers Calvin Grimm and Herb Gardner discuss their movie, Return of the Mothman, and the famed cryptid himself. We also delve into Grimm's doc, 37 Fallen, and his WVSU biopic, River of Hope. Also discussed, who benefits from the new West Virginia film tax credit? Welcome to the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast with your host, Buck Fantastic. On the last episode of the Mothman the Bible Belt podcast, I had famed parapsychologist Dr. Barry Taffel to talk ghosts, poltergeists, and extraterrestrials. On this episode, we're talking about famous cryptid Mothman and his appearance in West Virginia filmmakers Calvin Grimm and Herb Gardner's sci-fi horror thriller Return of the Mothman based on Michael Noss' novel of the same name. They released the movie last year and have been screening it across the country. Also, who's going to benefit from the newly reinstated West Virginia film tax credit? Hollywood, West Virginia filmmakers, or both? Graham and Gardner break it down. In 2019, Graham and Gardner co-founded the Vandalia Filmworks Foundation, a non-profit production group dedicated to preserving West Virginia culture and history through film. Graham and Gardner are the foundation's co-directors. Calvin Grimm is an Iraq war vet who's directed numerous films including the doc 37 Fallen and West Virginia Standing Together, Mountain of the Missing, and the historical drama River of Hope, which won the 2020 Best Feature Award at the West Virginia Filmmakers Festival. Herb Gardner is an actor, writer, and retired mental health professional and private detective. Gardner began acting in the 90s, primarily in commercial and educational videos, and he's also acted in several local plays. Gardner starred as Governor Ardis Fleming in River of Hope. Join me, your host, Buck Fantastic, for another exciting episode of the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast. It's eclectic chit-chat of otherworldly origins. Calvin and Herb, tell us a little bit about Return of the Mothman. Give us the plot, drop it like it's hot. (laughs) <laughs> well, we were uh, interested in doing a Mothman story, and we had three different um, plot arcs already going. And then uh, Calvin discovered the novel by Michael Nost, uh, who's later become one of our dear friends, Return of the Mothman. He reads it, puts it in my lap, and he's like, man, you got to read this. So I read it overnight, and then the next day I was like, why reinvent the wheel? This has got everything that we could possibly look for. Um, and that's how we decided to go with it. And we love the, the, the mythos of uh, the Mothman. It's a, it's a very West Virginia thing. Uh, and we definitely wanted to do a film about it. Yeah, we had uh, tossed around and we even had some you know, brainstorming sessions on different ways we could write an original story. It went pretty. We had a couple of good angles and, you know, I, I, we, we definitely could have done that. But. You know, COVID hit as well. You know, we, we released River of Hope in you know, February of 2020, and we wanted to, we'd sort of been talking about a Mothman movie on the side while we were 
finishing that, when I stumbled upon Michael Nost's book, that just kind of made sense. It was like, you know, we've got a few good ideas, but this is also a really good one. And uh, it's pre-made and we can focus on, you know, the movie making part of it. And, you know, just it wasn't a copy and paste by any means. Anytime you do a screen adaptation of something, it's there's changes um, that happen. We uh, we modernized it. Um, it wasn't set too far in the past, but I think it was supposed to take place like in the 90s just to make it easier on us budgetary wise. You know, we didn't have to find vehicles from the 90s and stuff like that. We It was pretty and it really didn't affect the story much at all. Just modernizing it by, you know, 20 years, 30 years or something. I think the only other big thing we really changed was a lot of the book takes place in a, a cigar shop where they were in the, the movie version we had switched that to be a uh, a bar instead and so you'll see a handful of uh you know scenes in the movie that take place at that bar and that's probably the biggest two that that's really the only two major things that we changed from the uh book to the movie what sets your movie apart from the mothman prophecies both to me have the same very ominous warning type vibe well you know I don't, we have both read the mothman prophecies and uh the difference between this and and say that film is there's no clear definition of what the Mothman is. I mean, um, is he is he for good? Is he for bad? Or it just does he foretell the future or at least give warnings of it? And uh, in our film, it's fairly clear cut, uh, the nature of the Mothman, uh, no spoilers. You know, the, the Richard Gere version, um, you know, the first act is really good. The second act is still good. It's getting weird. It's getting interesting, but... And the third act, and I, you know, I love, I love the movie. It just, it never, it never wraps up. You know, Richard Gere just kind of goes back to DC at the end of the movie. And, um, you know, story-wise, I mean, obviously there was a great cast. There's great acting. I, I love the movie, but it just, that, I, just to echo off what Herb said that um, we wanted to, you know, not everybody, um, you know, the Mothman can only be, you know, so many things. It can't be everything that people want, you know, theorize that it may or may not be. Um, but you know, Michael and his book had, had picked, a, you know, in, in football, they tell running backs, you know, pick a lane and stick to it. Um, you know, when they're looking down the field and, and Michael picked a lane and we liked his vision, um, for what the Mothman should be, um, and what the Mothman shouldn't be. I don't have any, you know, major attachment to that personally. You know, if someone else has a theory that the Mothman is different than how we portray it, you know, that's awesome. There's, you know, there's different kinds of vampire movies. There's different types of ghost movies. And there's going to be different kinds of Mothman movies. Herb, you went from playing West Virginia Governor Fleming in River of Hope to co-directing this monster flick. Why did the movie need two directors? Uh, Cal and I really just play well off of each other. Uh, I mean, we get started on a project. We have a central focus, but we are different people. We have different perspectives, different outlooks, and we play off of that because, you know, in when you're doing something like a film in such a it's such a group effort the last thing you want is a homogenized group of people where everybody thinks the same speaks the same you want people that have a different outlook so you can play off of that they're going to see something you don't see i'm going to see something you don't see or see something down the road that possibly we could do that hasn't crossed your mind same thing in reverse so it really helps to have those those different perspectives on things did you like having a co-director, Calvin? Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I'll highlight one big reason is that, you know, Herb's you know, background was first in acting, and I avoided, you know, my first student films in college, I was so 
you know, nerve wracked to deal with actors that I used action figures instead and like did like a really bad Team America type thing for some of my early student films. Um, so, you know, I focused on the directorial part, the, you know, that, that aspect of it and her having uh, a much uh, bigger acting background, um, you know, a typical day on set is, you know, that he's working with the actors more so while I'm doing, you know, some other stuff, you know, um, you know, working with cameras or whatever. Uh, and we both do a little bit of everything though. And it, it and it really takes to, you know, the, I mean, these, uh, guys that make the, the big bucks out in Hollywood, you know, they have, uh, there's a director, but then they have a, a you know, a first assistant director, a second, a third, a fourth. And, you know, um, and this, you know, and, and what we have to work with, there's no like, you know, first assistant director, second, you know, third, it's that, you know, everyone's, you know, equally got irons in the fire and, you know, um, working just as hard on different stuff. Ted Browning, the protagonist, is played by Ryan Gillerin. Ryan played Sam Cavill in River of Hope. Did uh, Ryan enjoy the switch from drama to horror? <laughs> I guess so. At least if he didn't, he faked it pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, he's he's really come through as an actor. Um, he hadn't done much uh, acting before we casted him in River of Hope. I'll let Herb talk about that. But you know, they they worked a lot together as far as you know, going from zero to 100 miles an hour with his acting. And then uh, we had a good working relationship. We're, we're friends. And that's why we definitely wanted to bring him back for this movie. There is a uh, creative comfort of working with someone that you already know part of their internal process anyway. And you've already you've already worked with it uh, and working with Ron as well as the other actors. Um, you know, it's as my part as a director is actually getting them to go inside themselves. I believe that every actor has everything that they need. They're sufficient in and of themselves. It's just helping them tap into that because Ron and I have a very, very good rapport with each other. It was easier. It was easy for me on, on this film uh, to bring that out of him much quicker uh, than the first film, which I also did on the first one as well. You mentioned this a little bit earlier. You adapted Return of Mothman from Michael Noss book of the same name. Besides budgetary constraints, how did you all pick and choose what items from the book to pull from when you were assembling the screenplay? They were all budgetary. To be yeah. <laughs> um, some there's of them there's certain plot points that you, you can't live without. Otherwise, it's hmm. not the same story. Uh, we did our best to, to maintain the integrity of Michael's story. Uh, there are some things that, uh, you know, you're going, it would make us run over. It also would make in a three and a half hour movie if we kept it there are some flashback scenes when ted was a young boy with his grandmother who plays a central part in this in this story and we're like you know we can really do without the flashbacks because i mean basically it just lays the emotional groundwork for them in the novel but that emotional groundwork can be seen in the film the first time they're together so it was it was an easy choice. Just you know, go ahead and cut the the flashback scenes from when he was a child. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point because there's generally a rule of, in film, at least like in in filmmaking 101, they'll tell you when you're doing flashbacks in movies, you can get away with it like maybe a couple times, you know, two or three times, unless it's like the whole chunk of the like one whole act of the film takes place in a different timeline. That's that's a little different than just a flashback, but 
movies that are flashback heavy um, either end up looking kind of silly or you lose the audience's, um, you know, like where are we at in space and time? You know, the space time continuum gets a little uh, screwy. And um, the the whole in novels, it doesn't have that. You know, it's a different medium. So that rule goes out the window completely in a novel. Um, but the uh, the other thing um, and Herb touched on it is that, you know, the point of all of those flashback scenes in the book was, you know, to um, just hammer on the relationship between Ted and his grandmother. And I think we had, uh, I think we had plenty of that, you know, I think Ryan and uh, Kelly Strong, the actress that played Myrtle, um, it's one of my favorite dynamics of the movie. Some people have said it almost as a criticism that the, uh, you know, the movie's like, you know, it's about the struggle of Ted and his family. Well, like, that's what it is. And that's why we like it, you know, because you actually start to care about the characters and their problems. And then they're just plunged into this, you know, cryptid situation. How long did it take to get the wheels in motion on the return of Mothman? Uh, longer than it should have because of COVID. Um, yeah, we were you know. slowed down by a solid year. We had just filmed a handful of scenes at our studio um, and it was under COVID conditions. Of course, we had one of our uh, production managers had her certified as a, as a, as a COVID manager. She was literally taking everybody's temperature every hour and recording it. And everybody was in nitro gloves and N95 masks at the studio. But you can't, you can't use that when you're, when you're rolling camera. So those actors, you know, are exposed and they're breathing on each other and, uh, we had a scare, which turned out, thank blessedly, not to be anything. Uh, but, you know, we were sweating there for two days. It's like, you know, what if, you know, what if this person is positive? Uh, you know, and we just came to the decision, you know, we can't risk people their their life like this. So we'll do what we can on our own um, until there's a break uh, in the pandemic. And that's what we did. But it's it slowed us down for a year. We actually. Um, premiered it in theaters a year later than we had hoped. Yeah, we had originally set the goal of, uh, you know, once the pandemic started, it was like, okay, well, 2020 is out of the question, but there was a lot of production planning. We had to make the Mothman costume and all that. So we had we had stuff we could do um, in the planning phase. You know, there's always plenty to do there, but we originally wanted to premiere it at the 2021 Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, uh, which we ended up doing at the next, they, we, they didn't even have the festival in 2021. They had planned like a modified event. And then it just, when it was getting close to the wire, it wasn't worth it. So they pushed it back a year. And, um, you know, due to, a, you know, a, a lot of different factors, um, COVID mostly, you know, we, we were really excited to premiere it at the 2022 Mothman Festival. Um, it was a year later than we all wanted, but, it, you know, hey, you know, it, and what a great test audience because, you know, everybody was there to see the film. Uh, and we touched on this earlier. Uh, you know, everybody's got their own interpretation of Mothman. They have their own personal relationship with that mythos. So you've Especially got people from Point Pleasant. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, we're in a room, big room full of people. And, you know, if anybody's going to eat you alive, it's going to be them. When we got a standing ovation, it's like, you know, the lights go up and I'm in the front row and the, the authors, Michael Moss is sitting right behind me, as well as John Russo, who was in the film from Light of the Living Dead fame. And uh, I was almost too frightened to turn around and I just start hearing this applause. 
And then I turn around and the whole room is standing up. And that was, I mean, that just left me speechless. Was everything shot in West Virginia? Yes. Yes, it was. Yep, 100%. Most um, exciting thing for us, I think, I, uh, even though it had some headaches, I think Cal backed back me up on this. Most uh, exciting thing is we actually got to film inside of a coal mine. Yeah. An active uh, coal mine? Uh, it was at one time. It's an exhibition coal mine now. Uh, but up until, uh, what was it, I think, 1923 or 1927, I forget exactly, it was an active coal mine. So things are as they were back then, and you know, there's there are some more modern things added to it. Um, but you know, it's a it's a coal mine, you know, with uh, bolts in the roof and holding it up and tracks taking you down and inside of the mountain and water on the floor and yeah, a lot. Actor, director, producer, and screenwriter John Russo, a WVU alum, known for co-writing the screenplays for the original night of the living dead he had a cameo in that too and also writing the return of the living dead and eddie monster himself butch patrick how did y'all go about getting these actors for the film uh telephone calls uh actually uh, john uh we got in contact through, uh, with him through michael lost and got a number for me cal contacted him and then uh again michael Noss. um and those which Patrick and through the um, convention circuit, you know, and I uh, gave us a number and I called him up and talked with him. And they're both just amazing people to work with. Very easy to work with. Very generous. Um, you know, it was uh, a lot easier process than I, I thought it was going to be. And they didn't, you know, act like, you know, uh, you know, snob, you know, you think about you like when you bring in like, you know, people who are, you know, closer to Hollywood royalty than we are by a long shot. And uh, they were just down to earth, great to work with. Um, and uh, we, uh, the first scenes of the movie that we shot were actually with John Russo. Um, and he was, he was on set uh, during the COVID scare we had. And that's why we all just pumped the brakes because it's like, man, we can't get John Russo sick. <laughs> and uh, luckily nobody did. Um, but uh, it was, uh, yeah, he was the first scenes, and then uh, later on we got Butch, Butch Patrick down. John's been uh, really great. You know, we're we're connected with him on social media, and uh, you know, like Herb mentioned, he came to the premiere. Uh, he's based in uh, Pennsylvania, I think, just outside of Pittsburgh, so he's not too far away. Whereas Butch Patrick is based out in Los Angeles, so for him to get out here is not just a three-hour drive; it's you know, a three thousand-mile plane ride. So Butch Patrick didn't make it out, but John did. And that was, it was really great that he came down. He saw what we were working with. He saw our, our humble studio here in Charleston. And, um, you know, several times he was just like, you guys are doing great work. And uh, um, it was great to work with you. And to hear that from him meant a lot. You know, it's like any, you know, anybody that watches the movie and likes it, you know, and they give us a, a pat on the back. It's like that we, we love that too. Uh, but, you know, when, someone like John Russo says, Hey, you guys did a good job with this. Um, it means a lot. And, uh, I think he's going to be working with us again. You know, we've got a couple of projects, uh, lined up for this year and he's going to be a part of at least one of them. So is it zombie related? Not yet, but he's trying to make it be, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, which, uh, it, you know, maybe, I know it's John, if, if John's involved, you know, um, sure. Yeah. I'll say, I'll say yes. There'll be a zombie involved somehow.
Awesome. I love those two movies. I have to say, you know. Yeah, you wrote the screenplay for Night of the Living Dead. He he invented pretty much what the modern film version of a zombie is. Uh, that that was um, that didn't exist. You know, there was mummies and there was ghouls and goblins, but. Romero. They weren't eating anything. They weren't eating flesh, I don't think, before that, were they? No, but, there's yeah, several. You're, you're, you're right. Yeah. Well, it's it's to me, it's it's the literary, well, it's the equivalent literary-wise that, like, Robert Louis, when Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Treasure Island, uh, he basically coined, like, most of what you see in books and movies about pirates, you know, a, a guy with a peg leg and a pirate on his shoulder and a, uh, a treasure map with an X on it where the X marks the spot. Like Robert Lloyd Stevenson developed, you know, the cinema pirate and John Russo invented the cinema zombie. And uh, I mean, Romero was, you know, that he, they, uh, you know, as I understand it, John was more on the creative side. And then George, when they hooked up, that was, he was more involved on the pulling everybody together and uh, you know, getting the logistics of it done. But um you know, they just, he said that they were kind of bored with a lot of the, you know, the late fifties horror movies where it was like, you know, some big mantis or a cockroach eating the whole city or something. And they said they wanted to get something, do something original. And they did. Alex Fox, who frequently acts in Charleston light opera guild productions is your Mothman. was casting Mothman difficult. No, not once we found no. Alex. No, I literally, I went on, um, the uh uh it's uh the acting uh cast website uh, i can't remember um uh, backstage.com um and it's basically a directory for actors and we knew we wanted someone really tall but not someone that was we want uh, we wanted a really tall skinny person because that would that was you know that the mothman is tall and skinny you know um so uh we i went on to backstage and you can actually you know, search cast for cast members that have profiles by their height and weight. And, uh, you know, I didn't care if it was a boy or a girl, uh, you know, uh, old person, a young person, I didn't care about anything except we just, we, it, it was an interesting way to go about it, but I just, I, I found him and like one or two other guys, but, um, he had portrayed, you mentioned some of his light opera guild work, but he's done a lot of work in other big costumes, like the Disney characters, like Beast, Jack from, Sparrow, Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Um, so he's he he worked with the uh, I think like the Putnam princess princesses or some some of the Disney reenactment, you know, Disney group. princess parties. Yeah, that you know, um, and they um, those costumes they wear are not you know comfy, and uh, so we um, that was you know his physical size um, and that experience combined with what herb said like he was just a great i mean he was such a trooper we put him through a lot of real bad stuff in that uh costume and he never once uh batted an eye about it and just asked hey do we need to do it again and i mean even changing i mean literally his body because we were looking for somebody who was tall which he is and somebody who was slim which he, you know he is still but the costume you know realize that after you layer it and layer it and layer it, then you add wings to it it's really heavy so he actually put on close to 30 pounds of muscle before this project was over with to make that costume work. How heavy and, was it? Uh, you know, exact pounds. I don't know. I mean, we've, I've never carried it in one piece. I've, I've, we've, cause we take it apart. It's always in pieces, but, um, 
Yeah, it's like uh, I'm just carrying it in pieces, and I'm going. I can't imagine this whole thing on me at one time. So he was a trooper with that. Like I said, he gained close to thirty pounds of muscle just to make it work. The wings, especially, were uh, pretty heavy, and that you had to hold your arms in a pretty awkward way to get them to look right and flap right. And that was uh, um, definitely you know, between takes. We always have someone say, "Okay, go, go take his wings off for a second so he can rest his arms." But yeah, we we made the costume uh, from a cast of his body, and um, we used sort of a uh, a primitive but effective uh body molding technique um where we had him wear like a tight jumpsuit uh like a, a long sleeve t-shirt and like you know let's call it like tight pajama almost not quite yoga pants you know but um tighter gym pants and we wrapped his entire body in duct tape <laughs> and uh then we um you know so he's he's in a full duct tape suit at that point um and then we cut that off of him and taped it back together and filled it with foam, you know, like spray foam. So we had wow. a mold. We had a mold of his body to make to to then make the costume around, and that's how the basis of the costume started. You know, from the you know the first inside layer to all the um, a lot of they used a lot of co uh, Chris Woodall and Andrea Anderson. Uh, Chris designed he he drew the original drawings of it and came up with the original baseline costume. And then Andrea came in and pretty much designed the wings um, and then also took the, the costume Chris had made and did some functional improvements to it. You know, like literally she like there's a big shirt piece that's got like the chest and the arms on it in the back. And she's like, hear me out. This sounds crazy, but I'm going to cut it in half and then I'm going to put it back together. And it's going to because it was just one big shirt piece that you put on. But uh, she made it so that uh, it was more like a front panel and a back panel. And she kept coming up with all these just like genius ideas on how to make it just even a little bit more comfortable for Alex to wear. And uh, she does a lot of costuming for other stuff, too. Um, so she was um, it, that, that was instrumental in helping him and also helping the whole production move faster because literally her adjustments to it were helping him move faster and move his arms better and walk better and all that good stuff. So it was, it was a pretty neat process, you know, making the actual Mothman was a, you know, it's a big part of the Mothman movie. Did Chris get inspired by the humanoid mutants and the movie Chud? You know, I don't know. Um, I think he, uh, he, he's a, amazing artist in a lot of disciplines. He's a painter and sketch, you know, he sketches and he had been, I think coming up with the overall look of it um, for a long time. You know, I think he'd done some paintings of the Mothman prior. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if that specifically inspired him, but uh, it, uh, I, I, from talking to him, I think, it, I mean, and Herb, you can, take over from there but i i think it was a lot of i think he was inspired by a lot of different you know versions yeah i mean chris never mentioned one particular thing that you know really seared into him and, and made a difference is where he had that aha moment this is this is what it's going to look like um to reiterate you know what cal said he's got a huge he's got a, a very broad background 
Uh, and the one thing about Chris is he absorbs so much. I don't think you could probably pinpoint one source for his inspiration because he takes inspiration from literally everything around him. Do you think portraying Mothman as an evil, villainous, murderous bastard tarnishes his good, wholesome legacy while promoting <laughs> hatred towards cryptids? <laughs> I hope Serious not. question. Uh, I, I know. Uh, I really don't. Uh, you know, Cal brought it up earlier. Is everybody's, you know, there's so many people have different versions of, there's different versions of werewolves and vampires. And there's different versions and interpretations of the Mothman, and ours may not fit other people. Um, and we don't deride that at all. It's like, I mean, we want people to enjoy the mythos of him, however they interpret him, whether they interpret it literally that, that he's a living cryptid or that he's you know, part of the collective unconscious or he was a mutated beast, you know, that got affected by chemicals somehow, you know. Whatever works for people is great. I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be some time in the future uh, that somebody will put out another Mothman film and their version will be the antithesis to ours. And I'll be the first one buying a ticket to get in line. Yeah. And we've uh, we've talked about the you know, good, we, even at the you know premiere. That's that's the, usually the first question that we get asked is like, oh, the movie was great. But like, you know, what about, you know, that part? <laughs> and uh, you know, I, uh, I just, I point to Michael, you know, cause we, we, we kind of went with what was in the book. Um, and I thought it, it was, you know, of all the different versions that were out there, um, this was a pretty cool one. And, uh, th then there's also the possibility we may readdress it in a sequel. So we've, uh, we've talked about maybe doing a, a part two and, uh, and if we do that, I think that that question comes back up again. Maybe there, you know, was there a misunderstanding or, you know, was, was the story was the story complete? You know, maybe there is more to it. We'll talk about that in the sequel if we get to it. Calvin, do you believe Mothman existed or exists? Uh, no, not really. Um, but uh, I I really have been fascinated with the Mothman. I I grew up originally in the other Virginia, and then I moved here in high school. And uh, I. It was in 2002 when I moved here and the other, the first movie had just come out. The Mothman prophecies had just come out and I had literally never heard of this thing called the Mothman until then. You know, no, you know, I'd heard of like the goat man and some other cryptids, you know, obviously like Bigfoot and all that, but I had never heard of the Mothman until I moved to West Virginia. And I went on this like deep dive and like, you know, the internet wasn't as good in 2002, but I was on like every like weird cryptid site that existed back then. And then uh, I walked down to the mall and bought a copy of the movie on DVD and um, uh, did this deep dive on it. And it was one of those things where I always wanted to believe in it. I believe that, you know, something, you know, some weird stuff has happened that is not explainable through what we understand of the universe. But um, whatever that may be, I don't think it is a moth in any, you know, <laughs> by any stretch. Uh, but uh, I, I love the. I love the lore behind it. I love the uh, identity it has um, and what it does for Appalachia. Um, uh, I do. I do believe in all that. Um, he is a huge cash cow. I have to say there's that too. I mean, that's the elephant in the room. Um, but do I think, uh, you know, a half moth, half man? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so, but it, there may be something else out there. Who knows?
What about you, Herb? Does Mothman exist? Yes, but not in the normal sense. I don't think that necessarily he's a physical mutated humanoid moth. Uh, I think a lot of people overlook the, the possibility of a cross-dimensional being um, that would exist normally in another dimension. They can cross over, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not willing to write that off. I'm not sure what I believe, to be quite honest. My aunt and uncle, they live in Hernshaw. They saw a huge-ass crane in their creek, and yeah. that's a rarity for them. And you've had people saying, oh, it may be a crane. At the same time, you got a lot of witnesses. And I remember seeing something on the news a few years back. There's been new sightings of Mothman. So I, I don't think these people are lying. They saw something. I don't know what that is. Um. I wouldn't say that they're all liars or they're all kooky, you know. I just think well, at this moment in time, we don't know. We don't know. No, we don't. And the thing is, uh, Mothman is not just limited to West Virginia, but the larger part of He was in Chicago, wasn't he? Sure. And then all of, there were sightings um, the years leading up to the Silver Bridge Fall and even following it, there were Mothman sightings all up and down the Ohio Valley region. Uh, and then there were also sightings in uh, Great Britain. So it's, you know, it's not just Point Pleasant or Logan County, as it's said in the novel. I mean, there's something that reaches our universal subconscious that we can relate to. I think he was uh, also seen in Clendenin. Hmm? He was in Clendenin too, right? Yes. Um, and one thing that I learned throughout making this uh, film was in the Point Pleasant area, you know, there's a lot of people you know, still that live there and were alive when the bridge fell down and, you know, a lot of people died. I mean, it, it was a seriously traumatic and tragic event for that town. And, you know, all the joking stuff about the Mothman really doesn't fly with them. Uh, there are kind of, I've seen like two camps, you know, there's people that, you know, they absolutely don't believe in the Mothman and they think it's, you know, um, you know, nothing, and it definitely, they don't believe it had anything to do with why the bridge fell down. Um, and to them, it's not a, it's not something, you know, that they want associated to the Mothman, you know, because it's like they lost loved ones and it's a serious thing for them. And there's other people in the Point Pleasant area um, who also lost loved ones and all that, but do believe that there was some, you know, interdimensional, um, extraterrestrial, whatever it was, um, this thing called the Mothman, um, they think was involved. And that's also a very serious thing for them. So, um, you know, it's, uh, and when you look and when you talk to those folks, you know, it's, you know, something went, went on. I'm not sure how to, how, how it would be explained in plain, plain talk, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a different, it's almost a different subject for them. The, the people that, you know, had either lived through it themselves or, you know, had family that died or friends. When can moviegoers see Return of the Mothman in theaters or stream it? Uh, it's with two different distributors right now who have approached us. And um, we're just we're trying to work through that. In the meantime, we're still putting it into theaters independently ourselves uh, until we decide on the right fit of a distributor for us. So until the contracts have been examined and the ink is dry on the contracts, the streaming won't happen until after that. And in the Do meantime, you all own we, the rights to it? I'm sorry? Do you all still own the rights to it? Yes. Um, 
to the film, yes, we have the option from the novel. Um, but I mean, the novel will always be Michael's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we um, we do have uh, the the next and the only actually, excuse me, the only scheduled screenings that we have coming up are in March at the Foundry Theater in Huntington. There's two dates: Friday, March 10th, and Saturday, March 25th. It'll be playing at the Foundry Theater in Huntington. They just installed a you know state of the art sound system there. We're slowly getting into other areas um you know just we have to you know as a small a a small studio with a small budget we have to be you know really careful with you know if we you know if a big theater in some big city um says yeah you can play it here but you just have to rent the theater from us for five thousand dollars and hope that you guys sell the theater out (laughs) um and we're not in home territory you know it's not west virginia it's you know a thousand miles away from here um, it's a big risk factor. So we kind of got to play our cards, right? We've, uh, been able to work with a lot of independent theaters, um, who, you know, um, give us a more, you know, um, workable deal. Um, and we just, we have to keep stuff like that into consideration, but the goal is, you know, um, until we get it online, like Herb said, um, we're just going to keep take getting it into any theater that we can get in into hopefully have some news on a, a distribution thing um, in the near future river of hope is returning to theaters this february for black history month where can people see it to be announced very soon okay. stay tuned to our stay tuned to our facebook page from the but both the river of hope movie page and our vandalia filmworks page we'll have uh, it'll work we hope to have that announced this week but maybe early next did West Virginia State University help you all out when it came to financing the movie? Uh, which not re- they didn't have anything to do with Return of the Mothman, but uh, River, River of Hope. River of Hope, yes. Um, one of my uh, professors at West Virginia State, Dr. T. Fortimed, she's still one of my mentors. Um, uh, I, had, I, for, I had her for a couple classes. Um, when I did 37 Fallen, that was not a, I was still a student when I made it, but I, that was not a student project. Um, I decided to do that on my own. And she heard about it because the project got in the newspaper. It, it was on the front page of the West, uh, the West Virginia Gazette. And she came up to me in the hallway. She's like, dude, uh, you're making a, a feature length documentary. She's like, how are you going to, how you plan to pay for it? I'm like, I don't know. I just bought a camera and I've got a vehicle and, I'm going to hit the road and get this done. And she's like, let me see if I can't help you. And, uh, she helped, uh, me and my co-producer, uh, Tyler Miller on that, um, write a grant through the university and we got five grand and they gave us a university vehicle. And, uh, it was, wow. it was kind of interesting because the, the longtime president of the university, Dr. Hazo Carter had just passed away recently and he had this beautiful Buick that was just sitting there. So a lot of times they would give us Hazo Carter's, buick um to go do these film shoots with and we i, I drove hazel carter's buick all the way to arlington cemetery for a film shoot um and uh so that was the first time dr t and i had teamed up um for a film and then uh i had talked to her for years about the idea of doing the river of hope story i didn't have the name river of hope picked out i didn't have any actors casted or locations picked i just while I was going to school there, I learned the story of its of how it got founded. And we actually did a radio, like an audio um, 
sort of docudrama um, about it, and it's really bad. So please don't go looking for it. It is on YouTube, but it's really bad. Um, it's just it's definitely a student project, um, and uh, and I think that we did that in like 2012 or 13 or something. Um, so that's when I first really heard about the story. And I was like, why hasn't anybody made this into a movie? It's an incredible story. It's got love. It's got war. It's got, you know, civil rights. It's got all this awesome stuff in it. And uh, um, that just sort of stewed in the back of my mind. And did I for a while, I started doing more commercial work than anything else. And I was getting burnt out on that because, you know, you can make a really good gas station commercial. But at the end of the day, it's just a gas station commercial. Um, and that isn't, you know. I wanted a little more out of out of it than that um, as far as what I was putting my time into and uh, finally decided to um, get this going and uh, started writing, a, you know, wrote a, you call it, a, I guess, a treatment, you know, a, a summary of how the movie should go and um, did a lot of research. And that's about the time I linked up with Herb on the project um, and uh did a, a lot of research and it was actually i i was going back to state to get my master's degree and at one point it was part of my master's coursework um to do the research for the film um i still haven't finished my master's degree so um <laughs> uh but at the time i was i was a active student and dr t uh found found out that you know i've reached out to her about the project and she's like well, let's see if we can't get a grant and uh i I thought it was a shoe in. I told Herb and everybody else involved that, you know, I started sort of pulling a cast and crew together. Um, and, you know, at least had, you know, a starting point of, you know, um, of how we could get this done. And we submitted that we, we applied for this grant and we thought it was a shoe in and a couple months go by, we're waiting, waiting and we get the results and we didn't get the grant. And I was like, dang, like, well, this, you know, we don't, you know, I, you know, I was pretty much broke at the time. Um, you know, I was working on this house that I owned and that was sucking up all my money. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of stalled at that point. Um, I was actually thinking about reverting and just writing a book about it. Cause I thought it was such a great story. I was like, well, if I can't make a movie, maybe I can just type out some kind of a, a novel about it. And, uh, then all of a sudden, um, it, well, she was anonymous at the time and um, I can't remember her name right now, but somebody that uh, really loved the story went to doc, Dr. T had told her about this movie idea and this lady, um, you know, had disposable income and she said, well, I'm going to donate $8,000 to this film river of hope. Um, but she couldn't just cut me a check or Dr. T a check. So she wrote West Virginia state university, a check for $8,000. And that money was then distributed by the university to our cast and crew um, to get the first, I would say, third or half of the movie filmed. Uh, and that was um, it. You know, when, anytime you involve a big university with something, you know, you've got administrative and clerical, you know, challenges. Uh, everything's, you know, there. It, it added a lot of steps to our accounting and all that. Um, which I think was another motivation for us to establish our own organization so that, you know, we didn't have to partner with the university if we wanted to get a donation like that in the future. Um, so, um, which, you know, we're established as a nonprofit for that reason. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the, the university was involved, uh, um, 
not not so much on set, but um, administratively, they were involved. What inspired you to do Thirty Seven Fallen? Uh, that was um, uh, originally. Uh, well, I was in. I was going to school, and I was making some student film, like little thirty second things here and there, and. Uh, once I had enough of a grasp on how to film stuff and how to edit stuff film wise, uh, I thought I could do something more, uh, uh, more substantial. And, um, I wanted to do something military related. You know, I had done uh, my time in the military and, uh, you You're know, in I, Iraq, right? Yeah. I, I was in Iraq for eight months. And, um, one thing that I had noticed, uh, peripheral to that um just that you know um, it happened to be at that time that you know we were still heavily involved in iraq and afghanistan and you know when we first entered both of those wars if you know uh if someone was killed killed in action you know it was a big deal you know they talked about that person they interviewed their mom on the news um you know they said their name and uh just as an example, the first West Virginian that was killed, who's, who's featured in 37 Fallen, uh, Sergeant Gene Arden Vance, when he was killed in Afghanistan, like shortly after not 9-11, like a month or two after the, you know, September 11th, 2001, he was killed in Afghanistan. And his family was interviewed on the Today Show by Matt Lauer. I mean, he was on national news. He, his story and his family was on national news. By the time we were work, started working on 37 fallen they weren't mentioning casualties names it was just like six dead in iraq 13 dead in afghanistan you know um so they they'd been reduced to just numbers and tick marks and they weren't even saying their names anymore and that really bothered me um and i was like and i, I just happened to look up i think it was the washington post had this page it was like uh, faces faces of the fallen that's what it was called and i think the site might still be up but it's a thing the washington post had where you know you could search by state all the casualties in iraq and afghanistan and i just happened to click on west virginia and at the time there was 37 of them and i was like i want to tell these guys and girl um uh sergeant uh anissa shero um she was actually the second casualty in Afghanistan from West Virginia and her story's in there as well. They deserve to have their stories told and preserved, um, in, in a bigger way than just, you know, you know, you got seven clicks deep on a, on a website, which, which that is a great website and resource. Um, but, uh, you know, so we teamed up with the, um, West Virginia gold star mothers, um, which are the mothers of fallen troops. And, uh, you know, we all all of them that we could get a hold of their families, and some of the families weren't really willing to talk to us because they they just they had nothing to say about it, and that's that's their right completely, and we didn't think anything badly of them for that at all. Um, every every family and every family member grie grieves different differently in those situations. Um, we sought out some of their unit members as well, um, and uh, it was. Um, so that was the that was the biggest priority um, is that we wanted to get their stories told um, more that more so than the media was giving them, and also it was a uh, it was therapeutic for me because you know I had I, when I came back I had a lot of survivor's guilt, and it was a way for me to you know say thank you and in, in some sort of a significant way to them because they didn't make it back and I did and um, that was that that was why thirty seven fallen came about. As an Iraq War veteran, how do you feel the government is doing to help rehabilitate 
and reestablish military vets back into the workforce and into society? Um, better than they were. Um, you know, like when I got back from Iraq, no one even really talked about PTSD. Um, it wasn't until, you know, at least a few years after that, where that was really talked about, um, you know, and, and just benefits for Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Um, uh, President Biden's son um, being an Iraq vet, and he, he actually died of uh, cancer that was linked to burn pit exposure. Um, I hate that his son had to go through that, but because of that sacrifice of his, it's brought the burn pit issue to a national platform. You know, President Biden talked about it in his uh, State of the Union speech. Um, so it's, 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 it's gotten better. Um, and VA healthcare has gotten better. Um, uh, there's, uh, a lot of good things. There's still a lot of challenges. Um, it, it'll never be perfect. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, I, I like some of what I see I'm seeing and I, you know, not, not to be political, but I do like a lot of what president Biden has done for our, you know, specifically post nine 11 vets, because there's a lot of us now. Um, and it used to be, you know, like, even 20 years ago, it seemed like, you know, the VA was mostly caring for, you know, World War II, Korean War and Vietnam vets. Well, now that is almost completely switched because, you know, you know, sadly, a lot of them aren't with us anymore and they're, they're dying off on us. Um, you know, World War II vets, there's hardly any of them left now. And it's like the, the 9-11, the post 9-11 vets are becoming the old guys. Okay, back to the return of the Mothman. Did any... West Virginia State University students work on Return of the Mothman? A bunch of them. More so on the crew side, I would say, than cast. What upcoming projects do you all have in the works? Um, a couple in the, in the works right now. One is uh, a short film based on a short story by Michael Nost. Uh, it is a um, psychological thriller, even though there is some overt violence in it. Um, what takes the main stage is the psychological interplay between uh, the two leads. It's hard to tell who's the antagonist and who's the protagonist, who's the good guy here and who's the victim. Um, and it was brilliantly written uh, when he sent me the, uh, the PDF of it in, a, in, a, in an email. We had talked about it two years prior. Um, it was the middle of the night and I opened it up and I literally I read that short story front to back three times. And with three different mindsets, it's like the first time I read it, I was reading as someone who just loves to read and loves a great story. And I was like, wow, this is one of the darkest things I've read in a decade. Uh, then the second time I, I read it, I read it as an actor. You know, it's like, how does this present in front of the lens? And by the time I read it the third time, I was I was reading it like more from a production angle. You know, what's it going to take to make to make this happen? Um, and then there's another project. Um, that is really cow's baby and I'll, I'll let him roll with that i'll put it this way we've got a like a three-page list of <laughs> projects that we want to want to do uh so it's um uh that's a tough question I, i'd have we, we we'd have we'd have to have a whole other podcast episode about just like the potential projects that we want to do one that's uh get, catching steam uh, we're starting to kind of uh dot some i's and cross some t's is uh a project called camp midlife um, and it is about a uh, group of adult friends who are all hitting uh, rock bottom in various ways. And they come up with a scheme, a get rich quick scheme to start an adult summer camp. But also it, uh, it doubles as a uh, 30 day uh, rehab program and uh, housing for uh, recovering felons. Uh, 
So they go after a bunch of grants to make it a 30 day, you know, rehab type facility, but they also open it as like a regular adult summer camp, a very yeah. high end expensive adult camp. Yeah. They're, basically they're all, they're, they're bilking both sides, but, uh, yeah, they're charging, you know, Karen's and Chad's, uh, for a, a, a month of summer, uh, summer camp, uh, you know, fun. And then they're also bringing in a group of, uh, people that uh, are from a different walk of life um, as well. So um, it has a lot of throwback, uh, you know, um, stuff to, you know, some of the classic summer camp movies like, like meatballs and salute your shorts and um, you know, stuff, stuff like that. But it also has a, a modern, a completely modern spin on it and touches on some serious stuff like addiction and uh, you know, people who are, you know, having midlife crisis and, you know, using, access or whatever as a outlet for that we also have a documentary on deck um tentatively called rise of the elk which is about the reintroduction of elk into west virginia that's scary and, yeah they're big they're big beasts um, um they're pretty magnificent um they uh um we had a really good meeting just a week or two ago with the dnr because a lot of these elk have like gps tags on them uh so we want to go out and film the elk and film, you know, the, the wildlife guys that go out, guys and gals that go out and work with these elk. Oh, I got one more I'll, I'll throw on you. Um, we're working on an Appalachian adaptation of the Sherlock Holmes story, uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, and uh, it's a uh, basically an Appalachian retelling of the story. Um, and uh it's a, you know, Sherlock Holmes is actually the most prolific character in cinema history. And, uh, I mean, just Hound of the Baskervilles, there's like, you know, 10 different versions or 12, probably 20 or 30, really, um, if you really get into it. But, uh, um, so we're going to do a different, and the, the neat thing, uh, well, I, I guess it's neat, it's neat for filmmakers is that, uh, all of the Sherlock Holmes stories went into the public domain this, in 2022, um, so anybody out there who wants to take any of Sir Arthur, Arthur Colin Doyle's uh, original stories and adapt them, uh, they're in the public domain now. So um, it actually became official weekend before last. Yeah, that's right. Is the latest film tax credit that the West Virginia legislature passed going to help filmmakers like yourselves, or is it going to benefit mostly Hollywood filmmakers that shoot in West Virginia? Mostly them, but sometimes us. Um, also, when big productions like that come in, we um, I call it you know half, half serious, half joking. I call it I call it sell sword work. You know, I uh, I do a lot of subcontracting out for different production companies. So, uh, if Paramount or Disney came into you know West Virginia and wanted to hire us as crew or cast or something, um, and they benefited from that, that would also benefit us. But um, uh as of right now um we haven't done any projects that would have qualified for it because uh it just passed last year and that this project we'd already we don't we were already halfway through the mothman project so hopefully we we can take advantage of it um you do have to have a you know a lot in a lot of senses you have to have a bigger budget than we work with for that to be a, a real you know asset um you know like <laughs> The companies that are using it, you know, are probably saving more money than the entire budget is for our films. <laughs> uh, 
So um, we hope to take advantage of it. We actually lobbied for that. Um, Herb and I went down to the Capitol. Um, we met with Delegate Diana Graves, um, and uh, she was the one that sponsored that bill to bring it back. Um, we had a really great meeting with her. Um, we also wrote letters of support to members of the uh, House Senate and uh, um, House of Delegates. Um, so we were really, it's only going it, to, the short answer is yes, it's going to help us, if not, in, if not directly, indirectly. And it also helps all the people we work with, um, you know, because anybody who's, you know, cashing a check um, for being able to do what they love, um, that's a huge thing. And there's, it's going to open so many more opportunities for West Virginia to be featured in big projects. Um, cause if Disney does have a project that, you know, they need woods or whatever, if, um, if West Virginia has that tax credit, you know, it makes them competitive with places like Georgia and Pittsburgh and, and Hollywood and whoever else. Mothman is West Virginia's sacred cryptid honey child and an inspiration to us all. Mothman has been a huge boom to Point Pleasant's economy thanks to interest in the cryptid and the annual Mothman Festival put on every September in the West Virginia town. The question remains, do movies that slander Mothman's good name root on cryptid hate crimes and hate crimes against otherworldly beings? Should we ever make contact with extraterrestrials and interdimensional beings? Will such movies promote killing these entities versus sitting down and rolling a joint with them? It's something everyone should be thinking about. I want to thank my special guests, Calvin Grimm and Herb Gardner, for coming on the podcast to discuss their movie, Return of the Mothman. For Mothman the Bible Belt podcast outlet updates, guest bios, links to social media, and more, visit us on the web on www.mothmanthebiblebelt.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>